I am quite awestruck, actually, if I look over at what God is doing here. It is exciting to think. A few months ago, there's a few families meeting for an evening Bible study, and now September long weekend, and we don't have enough chairs. This is wonderful. God is good, and we need a building. <laughs> but we're going to do the best we can with what God's given us in the meantime, so keep praying. This is our last uh, Sunday in the Psalms before we start on our series of Matthew, as Don has already alluded to. And so we are wrapping up now the summer series with Psalm 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, and you can also put your thumb for now in Romans 1 and 2, because we're also going to be looking at that later on. Uh, But open up to Psalm 10, and once you're there, then I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. These are the words of God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As far as all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note vexation For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I mentioned last week that Psalm 10 and Psalm 9 in some Bibles, in Greek and Latin Bibles, were put together as one psalm because they're very closely connected. Uh, But in the original Hebrew, it becomes evident that these are, in fact, while they're related, they are separate psalms, and so we have them numbered accordingly uh, in our Bibles. But there's lots of overlap in this psalm with what we uh, looked at last week in, uh, in chapter 9. At the beginning of this psalm, David is lamenting how the wicked prosper. And when I was reading this for the first time through, I remember some of you probably know this old gospel song called Farther Along, right? And, and there's a lament in there about why are the wicked prospering year after year. They, they just keep getting richer and richer and God, your people are struggling. I couldn't help but think of that song here because this is a theme. David is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked, 
But by the end of the psalm, he is trusting in the Lord to do what is right. And this has been a theme in several of the psalms that we've looked at this summer. And uh, I will admit, I've, I've struggled a little bit with how repetitive some of these psalms are to preach through uh, a series in a different kind of a, a setting. Um, but I have made my peace with the fact that if God uh, puts this in these psalms so often, it must be important for us. It's obviously hard for us to learn these things Otherwise, he wouldn't keep reminding us over and over again. And so probably scripture's instructions are kind of tailor-made to the frequency and the force of the things that we need. What do we struggle with? That's what God harps on. And Paul says as much in his letter to the Philippians when he's repeating himself again and again to the heart of heart in the church. He says in Philippians 3.1, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So if God repeats it, I suppose I shouldn't get tired in, uh, in this either, nor should you. But this psalm does have some interesting material in it. Luther, commenting on Psalm 10, describes it this way. He says, There is not in my judgment a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. So this psalm, according to Luther, covers it all. Verse 1, it starts, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so the mood is set. David feels like God is far away. No doubt everyone in this room has gone through a period of life where God has felt far away. Your prayers bounce off the roof. God is far away. Things are not working. There's no resolution in sight. It's actually getting worse. Where are you, God? David sees trouble, and from as far as he can see... The Lord is far away and not attentive to the problems that David sees around him, and which David considers to be quite urgent. At this early stage in this psalm, it is clear that David is trusting himself and his own sense perception, his own feelings, or his own analysis of the situation, more than he is trusting in the promises of God. And that's why the flow eventually gets him to the promises of God. We, as Christians with Scripture, know as a matter of objective truth that God is not far away. He has told us he's not far away, and so we know that even when it feels like it, it's your feelings which are not dependable, and the word of God is sure. We know on the authority of Scripture that God does not hide himself from his people, and David knew this. So he's speaking of how things look to him instead of how they actually are. In verses 2 and 3, he says, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And so this is one of the the frequent warnings in scriptures of the rich man who is rich and self-sufficient, separated from the Lord. These men tend to become proud and self-sufficient. The more stuff you have, the more it looks like life can kind of work on cruise control. I don't need God. I'm healthy. I'm young. I'm ambitious. My bank account's big. What, What would I need God for? What do I need God for? Life is working fine the way it is. And Christians frequently don't help the case when we present Jesus as though he's just one more friend or like he's someone who's there to help you succeed in life rather than as uh, the bridge between God and man. When we present Jesus that way and someone can look at their life and say, well, it's perfectly good. I'm not lonely. I don't need a friend, right? I don't need Jesus to be uh, just another buddy. Uh, We don't help the cause. That's not the way Jesus presents himself. Uh, But nevertheless, when things are going good, people frequently forget their need for the Lord and what their actual need is. The rich man who is not saved, 
the sinning rich man, starts to boast in his success and in his power. And he often ends up going to the end of that road and overplaying his hand and destroying himself. The appetite for more is never satisfied. And so instead of being thankful to God, which would be the result of obedience, this man starts to take advantage of people who are less powerful than him. That, that appetite for more is always more, more, more. My father-in-law told me a story when he was teaching young boys Sunday school many years ago. Uh, there's this one kid who had all the toys. He had a snowmobile, he had a dirt bike, he had the coolest of everything uh, that none of the other boys had. And finally, one of the guys said, well, when would you ever be happy? And he thought about it, and it, this wasn't a joke. He said, well, I guess just a little bit more. Right? And isn't that all of us? Always just a bit more. Right? Well, I've made my first million. Are you happy? Nope. Because you're on to the second million. Right? Or, or however you're wired. There's always something more. We're always unhappy. We're always unthankful, left to our own devices. And so the righteous man, however, when he becomes wealthy, and the problem here isn't wealth, it's the disposition, uh, but the righteous man may also become wealthy, and when he does so, he does it with a disposition of thankfulness, which tends to spell, uh, spill over into generosity and into greater obedience and blessing for those around him, rather than into just consolidating his self-sufficiency. And this is in contrast to the wicked man that David sees who never has enough. His neck just keeps getting stiffer and stiffer and stiffer as time goes on. And the last stop on his journey is an outright rejection of the Lord. He feels that his money can buy his way out of any situation, and so he sees his dependence as less and less on the Lord as time goes on. And it is precisely because of this tendency towards pride and self-sufficiency that I think there are so many warnings in Scripture about rich men. And again, it's not that money itself is evil. It's not that success is evil. It's that the money and the greed often turn into sinful patterns that reflect uh, all through our lives. They show up everywhere. I, you, know, you start to think, well, I did this. I got this. Uh, and it, it takes us into a bad place. And so there's a certain ironic progression here that in the beginning stages, this, this prosperity that often comes, and I'm speaking to a room full of rich people, really, if we think of, uh, of our time in history and the continent in which we were born, really we're all quite rich, right? And think just in terms of scale, you've got something in your pocket that connects to a satellite that can answer any question that you'd have uh, about anything. What would David have given for that? Half his kingdom? Maybe. Think about it. Put it in perspective. We are rich people. We're all rich here. This warning lands on all of us. But a lot of this prosperity, a lot of the riches, whether it's in the Bible times or in our own experience, is actually, in an ironic sense, it's the result of faithfulness. It's the result of obedience. Our grandparents got off the boat here, and there was no jobs, but there was lots of work, and they just set to it. And through faithfulness, through hard work, through thrift, look at what they've got. We were born into this place. We were born on third base. Uh, and our financial prosperity is, in fact, the result of their obedience, of their faithfulness back there. And so there is a certain irony that that very obedience turns into something which becomes idolatrous and which harms us in the end because it started as a good thing. It started as a gift. It started as obedience and faithfulness. And this is really the heart of all idolatry, is taking something good that God has made, even a genuine blessing or a genuine gift, and we elevate it to a place that it's not rightfully uh, constrained anymore. It becomes the thing. It becomes our idol. And then we become a slave to it. 
Commenting on this, I think Douglas Wilson explains how idolatry works in the heart very well. When he says, God blesses and idols bribe and seduce. Notice the difference. Blessings versus bribes and seduction. It is the difference between a cheesemaker rejoicing in the wheel of premium cheese he just made and a mouse rejoicing in the little bit of cheese he just found for free on that little wooden tray. There are deep thinkers who want to reduce it all to the same thing because cheese is involved in both cases. God blesses with faith, obedience, long obedience, and then glory. Idols bless with a momentary glory and then a sharp snap. A blessing is the reward for those who have been led out of bondage. A bribe is a tidbit that entices those who are moving into bondage. The difference between the two is the difference between gold and glitter, between day and night, between honest labor and shoplifting, between heaven and hell. The differences are not subtle. Another shorter way of saying this uh, is in the words of the Puritan Cotton Mather who saw the, the disobedience of the grandchildren of the first Puritans who came, set everything up, built prosperous farms, churches, and everything, economies, and the grandchildren squandered it in their disobedience. And looking at it, he says this, and this is profound. Faithfulness begat prosperity, and then the daughter devoured the mother. Obedience and faithfulness created this, and then it destroyed these people because the obedience was gone and the blessings were still there. The progression of sinful, autonomous man continues when we start to separate our gifts from God who is the giver of these things. In verses 4 through 7, we read, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And so at a certain stage in the descent of this rich, proud man, at some point he starts to convince himself that there is no God. These men tend to be very proud and extremely bitter. And think of the people that you know who have convinced themselves that there is no God. You'll notice two rules about them. Someone who actually professes to be an atheist. Rule one, there is no God. Rule two, I am extremely angry at him. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? I'm angry at something that I pretend doesn't exist. But we cannot shake the fact that God does exist. Hence the anger. This sometimes doesn't turn out directly into the anger of atheism and the frustration of atheism. Sometimes it presents itself as a little more respectable. It looks like agnosticism or indifference. Well, maybe God does exist, but there's just not enough information for me to know that for sure. Maybe he doesn't exist. Maybe I can hide from his sight. Right? And it looks humble because I, I just don't know. I'm, I, you know. If there was enough proof, I'd believe. But there's many problems with that. This is actually the more deadly and more deceptive disease. It's worse than atheism in the sense that while it is just as godless, it looks more respectable. It looks less aggressive and less angry, but really it is functionally atheism. If you say God doesn't exist, or if you say I'm not sure, but I'm just going to live my life my own way, what's the difference? God is functionally absent from your mind in either way. 
You're living for yourself in either way, whether you're angry or whether you pretend to be humble in your unbelief. It's godless regardless. And this move, when we start to to look at ourselves and, and put God on trial rather than trusting that God is there and he does see all this, looking at much of the same unbelief that David was looking at, a more contemporary uh, commenter, apologist, Greg Bonson, says this. When an apologist or an agnostic attempts to be autonomous in his reasoned argumentation, he indicates that he considers God to be less certain than his own existence and that he places greater credence in his independent reasoning than in God's word. And you see what he's saying there. Any attempt that says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll believe God if there's enough proof. I'll believe God if something miraculous happens to me. I'll believe God if, right? If, if, if. What does that do? That says, I am in charge. I will put God in court. I will decide what's right and wrong. I will live my life my way. And if I decide God exists, well then, poof, there he is. But you're in charge of the system, and that's wrong. That's how we become proud. That's how we become self-sufficient. That's how our neck gets stiffer and stiffer and stiffer on our ways to God's gallows. This kind of a proud man the one being discussed here, seems outwardly successful. And David notes that in verse 5, where it says that his ways prosper at all times. So David looks, and it looks like everything this guy does is turning to gold. It's working out for him. And and he's a scoffer. He's a mocker. And yet somehow everything is turning out for him. He's just getting richer and richer. Everything seems to work for this guy. But in actual fact, this man is blinded to the reality that he is unable to see God or God's righteousness because he has no eyes to see them. He's consumed with himself. He's consumed in his project of his own life. And because the short-term success seems to be obvious on the surface, the proud man tends, over time, to lose all sense of proportion and of time. And it's interesting. In verse 6, he says that he starts to think that his position can never be altered and his success will be even multi-generational. See that there it says, "...through all generations I shall not meet adversity." Right? So not only now am I proud and self-sufficient, my grandchildren will prosper and be self-sufficient. Why? Well, because of me. I'm God. Of course my grandchildren won't get touched. Right? It, it, this pride sends, it, it even loses a, a, a perspective of time. And yet there is a sense in which he sees something that is at least partially true when understood correctly. There is a connection to multi-generational wealth that is in the Bible itself. In Proverbs 13.22, it says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And so there is, in fact, a biblical connection between faithfulness and blessing. Right? The, the, Solomon says that a good man will leave an inheritance to his grandchildren, so there's, there's nothing wrong with building for the future, with building for your grandchildren. In fact, it's even good. So there is a biblical connection. But this connection is not automatic and it should never be expected to last forever or on its own speed. The good man of Proverbs 13.22 has built up so he has an inheritance for his grandchildren. But part of that inheritance is the obedience to enjoy it properly. To use it further. It's not just a gift that lands on your lap. It's a gift that comes with the kind of obedience that will turn those five talents into five more. See the difference? It's not just a free gift. There's obedience uh, that's part of the gift. It says in that very verse, in Proverbs 33, that the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. 
And so wealth will not stay in the hands of the wicked for very long because they are not building up righteous capital alongside their money. And so the fact that the proud rich man's money is eventually going to end up in the hands of the righteous is one of the many ways in which God delivers his promise uh, to turn evil in on itself. One example, again, I've, I've tried giving some examples of how God does this. Think of in the Exodus. Think of the Israelite slaves, the most uh, powerless, impoverished people coming out of the worst kind of circumstances you could imagine. And then think, what do they leave Egypt with? They leave Egypt with Egypt's wealth, <laughs> with their economy, right? God was using the Egyptians to store up this wealth. And when they became sufficiently proud, Israel against all odds, walks out with that wealth and repurposes it for God's kingdom. That's how God does this. Egypt was a tool in God's hand to get wealth into Israel's hands. And then, of course, we know there's times of obedience and disobedience even in Israel. But there is a transfer there that God doesn't automatically just leave wealth in the hands of the original person if they are disobedient. And again, this is not a prosperity gospel because this is by no means automatic. This isn't a promise. This is just a general pattern of the way these things tend to work through history. So to pick up on a main theme from last week, one of the ways to make sure that future generations will be destroyed is to fail in our duty to remember the Lord. Okay? So a father can give his son money, but if there's not godliness that comes along with that money, he's going to watch it all fall apart. He's going to watch things not go well. And in fact, you could say the money actually makes the problems worse. And you see this all the time. I remember when I was at university in agriculture, uh, one of the uh, choruses, they were talking about how intergenerational farm transfers work. And he talked about the third generation of a farm. And you can actually see this as a, it's not a perfect rule, but it's a general principle that I'd say is accurate. And you can probably apply it to other businesses as well. You get that first generation pioneering family that put their blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. Okay? They, they are totally invested, and they turn a swamp into farmland, and things start moving. The next generation saw the commitment. They saw the hard work. They saw Dad's bloody hands, and they respect it, and they'll maintain it. And then my generation comes along. We were born on third base. We're rich, easy, air conditioning. I could sell all this and have millions of dollars. Right? Like the prodigal son. But, right? I, look at all dad's wealth. Look at everything grandpa and dad did. Dad, give it to me. I'll be rich for weeks. <laughs> right? And, and that's what happens when the faithfulness is gone, but the money's there. You will be rich for weeks. You can destroy wealth in a big hurry if godliness is not attended with it. And you can see this process of decay can be delayed by momentum, but apart from a living, active, vibrant faith in Christ, it cannot be stopped. People tend to presume on God's grace because the sun still comes up the morning after you sin. You commit some grievous sin, the sun comes up in the morning, okay, it's all good. God didn't strike me dead, I guess I can just go on sinning with impunity. But that's not the way it works. Momentum runs out. Momentum runs out. Uh, and think again, think of that generation, if you're my age, think of your grandparents and how different the world was for them. Think of the godly living and the discipline and the family cohesiveness and the hard work and they weren't perfect, but think of what they had. They did a wonderful job of modeling this, and I think not a very good job of teaching it. And so what happens to the next generation of boomers? It looks conservative. It looks like things are holding together. People tended to still get married and stay married, 
but they didn't know why other than, well, that's just what you do. You, you turn 22 and then you get married. I have no, I have no idea why, right? And, and sex is for marriage. I have no idea why, but we kind of still live that way without understanding. One generation later, what have we got? We've reaped the whirlwind because that faithfulness has not attended to those patterns, right? Just following the motions mindlessly without teaching. Why are we doing this? What is this? We have to explain that. It's not going to just get transferred just by watching. There has to be content. Uh, and scale it down here again in our church. We've talked multiple times about the way we want to do things with family-integrated worship. We want children here. We want them to learn the vocabulary and the rhythm of worship. It's important. So that when they turn 18 and they're all of a sudden in big people church, they have no idea what's happening because it's not a big youth party. Right? We want that. But is that automatic? It's not automatic. Right? We don't want to just go through the motions. The, these things have to be explained. They have to be talked about. We have to pass on the faithfulness because just passing on the, the thing is not adequate. We have to pass on the faithfulness, the remembrance of these things. So one generation can look orderly on the outside, but if it's rotten on the inside, things are on their way to falling apart. This is true at the big or at the small scale. So those families and businesses and churches and institutions that last multiple generations are those that have been intentional about telling the stories of God's faithfulness, of passing on not just the gifts, but the understanding of the gifts, the faithfulness, the understanding of who Christ is and what God is doing. They're diligent to pass on more than just money. Giving the next generation a bunch of stuff without any kind of covenant or reference to the Lord quickly becomes a curse like it did for the prodigal son. The successful businessman who gives his son a free ride through Harvard or an easy path to the CEO's chair is not passing on, if he's not passing on wisdom and righteousness, that son will have no idea what to do with these things once he's got them. It will be a curse to him. And his wealth will end up in the hands of the righteous. It will find its way there, like it always does. The fate of the proud, greedy man who thinks that his position is safe and permanent, and even here, the man that David's describing who thinks it's just inevitable that this is going to last forever, he attempts to pass on his prosperity without faithfulness. He is destroying both himself and those who will come after him. And I've seen this before too, and I, of course I see it in the farming world, where you see this farm that 30, 40 years ago was a prosperous farm, and it was just going good, and somehow, amazingly, Somebody has had the uncanny gift to turn it into a 1984 Pontiac Sunbird and a half a case of beer. How is that possible? Okay. It is possible through ungodly living. And, and godliness prevents that. Godliness uh, provides the discipline to know what to do with these things. But it is amazing how we destroy ourselves when we throw off God's law. When we start to live uh, our own way. When we become proud and self-sufficient, it gets destroyed. Verses 8 through 11 says that he sits in ambush in the village, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And here's a vivid description of this continued descent into pride, arrogance, and attempting to be independent from God. And there's two interesting things to note here about the description of the evil in this passage. 
And the first and the most obvious is that the wicked are so consumed with their idolatry and their self-service that the fear of God is entirely absent from them. They have no shame. The fear of God is gone. They'll do whatever they need to in order to give themselves an advantage. And some people even have the adrenaline rush of trying to get away with something. For some people, that is their, their idol or their drug, is trying to get away with something. And it becomes more and more outrageous as you uh, need a higher and higher dose to fix that adrenaline rush. But there's a second and less obvious thing to notice in the progression here in these verses. Despite the hardness uh, and the lack of shame of this man, notice that he's still sneaking around. Look closely at those verses. He's still sneaking around. If he's actually convinced that God can't see him, and if he's actually convinced that he needn't fear the Lord, why sit in ambush? Why lurk in the bushes? Why hide? If God can't see you, do the, murder someone out in the open. Take someone's wife out in the open. Okay? Brag about shacking up before you're married. Just do it out in the open. If there's no God, why hide? Why sneak around? Why would you do this? Why? It's an important question. At one level, the sinful man does believe his self-deception. He has started to believe his own press. And he is actually deceived at one level. However, as much as he denies the image of God in him, one thing we cannot do is actually discard the image of God in us. It's in you. You cannot escape it. It's there. God is haunting him through his conscience, even through all the layers of self-deception. And this is the reason why people cover their sin. This is the reason why you cover your fraud with paperwork. This is the reason you go to a dark corner to look at pornography. Okay? This is why you try to run around with your girlfriend before you're married, trying to hide it. This is why. Because there's shame, appropriately so. There should be shame. It's shameful stuff. And you cannot shake off the image of God. Trying to get rid of the image of God, trying to forget who God is, is like, and I love the analogy of, of this overinflated uh, beach ball that you just keep pushing under the water. It comes up. The minute you take your hands off, it comes up. You cannot suppress it for long. It wants to come up. You are made in the image of God. That's why even unbelievers know the difference between right and wrong. That's why they have to suppress it, because they don't actually believe it deep down. They know it's wrong. They know they're sinning. They know right and wrong. And so we know on the authority of Scripture itself that even the most hardened sinner knows with absolute crystal clarity that God is there, that God sees everything, and that God will judge it all. People may claim with their mouths to be atheists and to live autonomously, but the Bible is clear that there is no such thing as an actual atheist. Every professing atheist knows with certainty that God is there and he hates it. That's why he talks as though God is not there. Turn with me to Romans 1. Pick up at verse 18 and read through to 21. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Just stop there. Does anyone have an excuse? God hasn't given me enough evidence? I don't know. I, I just haven't, I don't, I can't make up my mind yet. 
Can anyone say that? No. The Bible says they are without excuse. They have no excuse. They know with certainty God is there. They just don't like it. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is why the Bible talks about suppressing righteousness rather than being ignorant about righteousness. We know it. We just suppress it apart from the grace of Jesus. And so one of the main problems with self-deception and suppressing the truth, like the man that David's talking about, is that we typically don't see or understand our own deceptions very easily. It's hard to look at the back of your head, right? We tend to be blind to our blind spots. That's what makes them blind spots. And that's why, as Christians, we need to be vigilant in our war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But this means we have to be in community with each other. We need friends to hold that mirror up to the back of our head. We need a covenant community to teach and to instruct and to encourage. And, if you're going off the rails, someone to love you enough to say, hey, hey, hey. Okay? If you actually love that girl, put a ring on her finger and do this properly. Okay? If you actually love your wife, treat her like you love her. If you actually want to become wealthy, work hard. Don't steal. Okay? We need Christians. We need community to help us see those blind spots and to help us uh, understand so we can be obedient and faithful. Lone Ranger Christians typically don't last long because they lack this accountability. They lack other Christians seeing the things that they don't see. And so we all need Christian friends and churches who are willing to hold that mirror of God's law up with the Spirit's help. And we need to be in prayer that the Spirit would give us eyes and ears to see what we need to do, and then the motivation and the ability to carry it out. We need to use the regular means of grace that God has built into corporate worship. Ordinary things that we can become bored of if we don't understand what's happening. We need the preaching of the Word. We need sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper to help give us physical reminders of God's grace. We need our senses involved in the work that God is doing in us. Prayer, singing, all these normal things are getting God's word into us. Because left to our own, we'll continue to turn in on ourselves and we'll believe our own lies and our own deceptions. So we always need to be measuring ourselves against the standards of God's words. David has looked into the futility of the proud man and his thoughts and he has seen that it is a dead end. And so starting in verse 12, the rest of the psalm is moving us back from that despair back towards a genuine trust that God will vindicate his name, that God will set all things straight. 12 to 15 says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked. Call his wickedness to account till you find no more. And so you see the shift of focus here. David shifts his focus from what his eyes are seeing to what he knows from God's own word. He shifts the focus from the deeds of the wicked man to the promises of God. He calls on God to rise up and to keep his promises. And then he works through the futility of what he's just seen in the wicked. David knows that God sees everything. David knows that God takes up the cause of the fatherless and that he is willing to break the arm of the evildoer to stop the evil. 
And he knows these things because he's not just looking at his circumstances, he's looking through his circumstances until he sees the purposes of God behind it. And that's our job as well, to see with the eyes of faith. Don't just look at your trouble, look through your trouble to see what is God doing here. What is he teaching me? Underneath this all is the question of how do we know what we know? What, what standard should we use? How do we order our lives? And left to ourselves, again, we, we, we become like the man David has just described. We start to trust our senses. We start to trust our own thoughts. We start to trust our own ideas. Because after all, what could be more authoritative than my own experience? What's more authoritative than my opinion? Right? Well, I've, I've thought about this for eight minutes, and I've arrived at a very strong opinion, so that's just the way it is. Okay? But we need, as Christians, we need renewed minds. We need to see that that's not the way it is. God speaks to us through his revealed word, through scripture. And so what he says is always ultimate. And think, again, think in terms of just common Bible stories. Think of the difference between trusting yourself and your experience or trusting the promises of God. How many couples did Abram and Sarah meet that were in their 90s and couldn't have children? Probably lots. You trust your senses? What do you say? Well, we can't have a, chil- we can't have a child. We're too old. God's promises stand. They did have a child. Okay? Peter, writing his own epistle, says that the scriptures are actually more authoritative than his own first-hand eyewitness experience. Peter says, yeah, eyewitness experience is good, but there's something far more sure. That's the word of God. Okay? The word of God is more dependable than any of your memories. It's more dependable than any of your thoughts. It's more dependable than anything you have seen, read anywhere else. It's the word of God. God holds the world in his hands, and so you can trust him. And this is how we know, when we are discouraged, when we see wicked men prospering, this is how we know that God prevails in the end. We all see and experience difficult circumstances, and so where do we ultimately go to know how this will play out? We have to see through it to God. God is always waiting to act at the right time and in the right way, and while we wait, we know two things that he is storing up. The waiting time is not wasted time. God is storing two things up. If you go to Romans 2, verse 4 and 5, it talks about how he is storing up wrath. It says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when wrath of God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is storing up his wrath and he is waiting to pour it out till the right time. Remember, there's the promise in the Old Testament that God's not acting yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God wants to fill the goblet of his fury up all the way so he can pour it all out on the Amorites at the right time. God is storing up wrath while we wait. Once that goblet is full, you do not want to be there when it pours out. But he is storing it up. He is going to vindicate this. The wicked will get what they deserve in the meantime. And so waiting is not the same as wasted time. But there's something else that God is storing up for those of us who know him in a saving way. Some of the most beautiful language about prayer occurs in Revelation 5.8 where it talks about the prayers of God's people are like incense that he has been storing up in golden bowls. God loves the prayers of his people and he stores them and he is waiting till just the right time to release that sweet aroma. And he's also storing that up until the right time. So our senses, our experiences may lie to us and cause us to think 
that God is too slow or too far away, but our Bibles assure us that God is always working perfectly, in the perfect way, at the perfect time. And we might think that if we had God's power, we might do things differently. But if we had God's wisdom along with that power, we would do it no differently. We would do it just as God has done it. And that's the sentiment behind something. I, it's a quote from someone else, from Tim Keller, that I shared this morning in Sunday school. And that's this. If you knew everything that God knows, you would ask for exactly what he gives you. If you knew everything that God knows, you would pray for exactly the things that God has put in your life. Because they're good for you. God is not far off. He is kind. And he is committed to getting you all the way home. Verses 16 through 18, it says that the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And this is a a fitting way to close it. We saw in Psalm 9 how God is transcendent and sovereign above the nations. And no nation and no man, no king can use the excuse that they aren't accountable to God because they don't recognize Him. God's authority just is. And regardless of what we think about it, it remains. If you jump off a bridge, gravity doesn't care what your thoughts on gravity are at that moment. It just is. Okay? God doesn't care what you think about His authority. It just is. Okay? It just is, regardless of your thoughts. God's authority is a fixed constant across the entire cosmos, and so nobody, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man or woman, can claim an exemption. Psalm 2, we saw at the beginning of the summer, was an entire psalm about Christ's ascension and receiving the inheritance of the nations from his Father. It's vast. And so there is no end to the kingship of the Lord, as verse 16 exclaims. He is free to remove squatters from his land at any point, He can build up Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and tear them down. He can do the same with Nero or Charles I or anyone in our day. He's free to redrop the map however and whenever he likes. And he is pleased to watch empires come and go. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, you name it. He does what he wants. My little empire is not immune. But it should also be noted here that this kingship of God isn't just powerful and transcendent but it's deeply connected in a close, personal, and intimate way to the fatherless and to the oppressed. Because of the way God designed our families to work, every family unit is a little kingdom, designed to have dominion, to run an economy, and most importantly, to display the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as the covenant head of this little kingdom, the husband or father is to paint a picture of Christ in his dominion over his church. Each husband, each father, is to serve as a type of king, and to lead and protect those in his home to blessing. And so in this imagery, the widow and the fatherless are without this head. They're without this small king in their lives to protect and to provide and to lead. And so this, while it's an opportunity for other godly men in the church to step up and to be constructive and helpful, what David has just described in this psalm uh, where the rich man preys on these people because they're weak, he sees it as an opportunity to consolidate his power and give him more power. And that makes David angry, and rightfully so. But then he calls out to the kingship of God. Rather than taking advantage of the weak, God builds up the weak. He comforts them. 
Instead of coming to the aid of the needy, the wicked man sneaks, and this is detestable to God. But that is exactly why I reminded that God is king forever over all creation, and this is a fitting way to close it, because the fatherless is not ultimately fatherless. He can call on the fatherhood of God. The widow is not ultimately without a protector and a provider. She can go directly to God. This is important. So the kingship of Jesus isn't just something to scare and intimidate, although it certainly is scary and intimidating to an unbeliever. But for those of us who are believers, it's also a precious, intimate promise. It's tender. God is close. He is in your family. He is in your home. He is protecting. He is looking out for your interests. And who else could we go to with our concerns but to him? Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I pray that as we all will have our own circumstances and our own places where we see how the wicked are prospering, how evil men are going from bad to worse, how they take advantage of the poor and the needy, they step on people rather than help them. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to do the opposite, to help those who need help, to bind up the wounds of the afflicted, to strengthen and to encourage and to assure that you are king. Lord, I pray that in each of our situations, Lord, if there are those who are tempted by pride, by vanity of life, Lord, I pray that you would soften their hearts and that rather than going down their own road, they would submit to you and enjoy your kingship and your fatherly hand in their lives. Lord, and for those who do know you, who are afflicted in various ways, Lord, please comfort. Give your Holy Spirit that we would see that what you are doing is good. You are committed to getting us all the way home. Our place in your kingdom is secure. Lord, and we can call out to your fatherliness and to your kingship at any time. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember that as we leave this place. Give us eyes to see where we can plug in and encourage. Lord, soften our hearts. I pray that we would never fall into the trap of idolatry, self-sufficiency. Lord, please keep us safe. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This. The overwhelming desire of fallen man is to live for our own glory instead of for God's glory. This means that we have to be intentional about suppressing the truth and righteousness of God so that we can feed and indulge our own vanity, pride, and wickedness. For those of us with the eyes of faith, the injustice of seeing the wicked prosper can seem overwhelming and discouraging, and it may cause us to doubt God's commitment to justice. But we walk by faith and not by sight, so we know that no one will be ultimately successful in their quest for personal glory. The fatherhood and kingship of God is the perfect answer for the afflicted and the fatherless, And this means that our job is both to proclaim and to model this until he returns to set all things right forevermore. Receive the benediction from Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has, been, who has given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. And go in peace.